Coming up on Tech Nation, Forbes.com columnist Carmine Gallo. He returns with five stars, the communication secrets to get from good to great. Then on Tech Nation Health, it may surprise you to learn that only one out of nine drugs which enter FDA clinical trials actually becomes approved. With the cost of a successful drug exceeding $1 billion, why do they fail? And what happens to the eight when they do? Dr. Dan Gold, the CEO of MEI Pharma, joins me to talk about what MEI sees as opportunity. All this coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. If you've been on airplanes lately, you know that the airline industry is going through a bit of a wireless and communications transition, which is understandable. The technology is changing all the time, and their services must as well. Not so long ago, it was an industry breakthrough to be able to show movies on long flights. You could just get one in from San Francisco to Chicago if they started it right away. Like kids at camp, there was a large screen in each cabin. And just before, flight attendants would go down the aisle distributing bulky headsets. Unlike today, where everyone pretty much brings their own. The airlines tinkered with the headsets were free. No, they're $4. No, what's your class of service? And even then, these were the days when you wouldn't use a credit card on board an airplane. There was only cash, and the bursar really was the bursar. Change was frequently asked for over the announcement system. But the truly unfortunate part of the technology? When the captain or attendants came on to make an announcement, the movie didn't stop playing, but the audio was preempted. I remember watching one Oscar contender when the pilot came on just as the critical scene was playing out. Passengers throughout the plane threw their arms up and loudly voiced some version of, What? They couldn't rewind, so that was that. The good news was that the pilot wasn't watching along with us, so he didn't know that this was not the time to tell us to look out the left side of the airplane. And then the large screen transitioned to individual screen. And now some airlines ask you to connect your tablet or phone to watch any of a big selection of video, be it movies or television, and you can even connect with the Internet at various price points, some of which are steep indeed. All of this stopped the rush to the restroom at the end of the movie, and something else, the constant pushing of the attendant call button. Passengers are engaged in all kinds of activities, from books, whether digital or on paper, to videos, to games, to you name it. Look down and there's an electric plug by your seat. We're all mesmerized by our personal technology, until it doesn't work. I flew coast to coast on a fully packed plane recently that sat on the runway for an hour before taking off. Gate to gate, we were looking at about seven hours in our seats. And what happened? 
the wireless didn't work. And that meant no movies, no TV, no working on your email, no nothing. The person sitting beside me peeked between the seats to read the large text format of the person in front of us who had what looked to be a pretty racy novel on her big tablet. Just like the old days, we were suddenly getting free snacks. And while the attendants kept telling us that the Wi-Fi worked, we kept telling them that it didn't. Finally, the public announcement came on with an apology and the airline's website, where we could get a choice of reward for this horrible experience. It turned out we got our choice of $75 to be applied to a future flight or nearly 4,000 frequent flyer miles. Not a bad choice when you think about it, but you still have to feel for the flight attendants. They didn't have a second to themselves. I'm Moira again. This is 5 Minutes. Five Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Five Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, you may know Carmine Gallo from his columns at Forbes.com and Inc.com and his books, including Talk Like Ted. He's here today to help your presentations merit five stars. Then on Tech Nation Health, is there opportunity in the eight out of nine candidate drugs that fall out of FDA clinical trials? MEI Pharma thinks so, and we'll hear why. In Carmine Gallo's book, Five Stars, he points out the difference between Alexa and Siri answering the question, Who is Alexander Hamilton? And Lin-Manuel Miranda, famous for his Broadway play, Hamilton, answering the question, Who is Alexander Hamilton? We start there. I'm so glad you brought that up and that you highlighted that. It was one of the more fun parts to write. And I started, Moira, by talking to a scientist in artificial intelligence and, and data analysis. And they told me that, Carmine, they said, the uh, machines don't have imagination. Machines can find data quickly, retrieve data quickly, make reasonable predictions based on it. They are predictive machines, but they don't have imagination. They can take two things that have never been done before and put them together. That's exactly what Lin-Manuel Miranda did in Hamilton. So the way I start the book is I – and I really did this. I asked Alexa. I said, Alexa, who was Alexander Hamilton? And she – it or the, the data we'll presume she. <laughs> she, the algorithm, <laughs> returned this answer. Alexander Hamilton was an American statesman and one of the founding fathers of the United States. Technically accurate, and she retrieved it faster than anyone ever could. 
Siri, who was Alexander Hamilton. So I went to another database and I asked her the same question. And here was her response. Alexander Hamilton was an American statesman and one of the founding fathers of the United States. Word for word. Word for word. So both of them do their jobs remarkably well. And then Lin-Manuel Miranda decided to call Alexander Hamilton the $10 founding father without a father, who got a lot farther by working a lot harder, by being a lot smarter, and by being a self-starter, young, scrappy, and hungry. That really sets the theme for this book, because great humans have an edge. Persuaders have an edge. They can make you feel and no machine, at least at this point in, in our humanity, has ever figured out how to make you feel and how to spark your imagination. And that's why great persuaders have an edge. That's why I wrote this book. As with all your books, you interview a long list of people, but you couldn't interview the Greek philosopher Aristotle. Not available, not available for interview. I never thought to look at Aristotle, though, as conveying what you call the ancient art of persuasion. Is that just rhetoric? I call it the ancient art of persuasion because, Moira, no matter who you analyze today, if you look at any great presentation, any great speech, even going back to the, the documents and the rhetoric by our founding fathers, everything is still based on the formula of persuasion that Aristotle gave to us, created 2,300 years ago. Every great movie, every great book, every great story, uh, the elements of persuasion, the things you remember, metaphor, analogy. Aristotle called metaphor giving uh, language its verbal beauty. It's amazing that Aristotle is the father of persuasion. And anytime you are persuaded by another person to take action or you're inspired or motivated or convinced – more often than not, they're using the very same elements that were handed to us thousands of years ago. So it's not the, – the tools are different. We're, we're using PowerPoints and presentation design and all sorts of uh, Facebook or, and ways of communicating are completely different. We're using digital tools, but the way we communicate with each other, if we truly want to be persuasive – the formula was given to us thousands of years ago. Aristotle just, noticed we were human. He was a pretty smart guy. And in <laughs> fact, when I was doing this research, I, I, I focus on Aristotle's rhetoric because he was the father of persuasion. That's the way I've come to know him in the last few years of doing the research. I didn't know until I started talking to scientists that the logic that he created is the underpinning of all computer technology today. So the way I look at it is, okay, so Aristotle gave us the, the fundamental building blocks of, of our computer age, the very same computers and, and artificial intelligence that is transforming our society and the workplace, but he also gave us the tools to outsmart these smart machines, and that's rhetoric and persuasion. Some of the things that you've done in the book, and by far not all, is to break down that essence, those elements, in things that are familiar to us. One, which many of us have not read but had to know about or write as an answer in American history, was Thomas Paine and that pamphlet he wrote, Common Sense, an, an argument for the columnist to fight for American independence. Now, we were always taught it was important, that it was, it was seminal to a catalyst, if you will, to many of those early actions. But 
Nobody actually told us why it was so effective. And then I read some of this in your book. I am glad you picked up on the history of it because the uh, the founding of America was largely based on persuasion and the persuasive arts. That's why John Adams and the committee to draft the Declaration chose Thomas Jefferson to wrote the to write the Declaration because he was the best writer. They know he was gifted in the art of persuasion. And what's interesting about the Declaration, also that pamphlet, which came out in 1776, but in January, uh, Thomas Paine's Common Sense, that pamphlet was meant to be heard. It was meant to be spoken. And, I've, and I, I know a lot about history, but I forgot that. Most people did not know how to read back then. So when uh, these uh, documents were written, they were meant to be read out loud on street corners and in taverns. And that's why they have their wonderful examples of having a combination of a logical argument for why the colonies should break from Great Britain. They had to make a logical, structured argument with evidence. That's the data. But they also had to appeal to people emotionally, and they had to sound good. So Thomas Paine's, and there's been a lot of uh, science on this or a lot of academic study on it, Thomas Paine's common sense had all of these wonderful rhetorical tools like antithesis, which is juxtaposing two different ideas in one sentence, anaphora, which Martin Luther King would often use, which is repeating the same word at the beginning of successive sentences, alliteration, parallelism. All of these are uh, rhetorical formulas that were given to us by the ancient Greeks thousands of years ago. And, and they're used to spark revolutions. They're used in great speeches like Martin Luther King. And to an extent, we still use these type of devices today. It's interesting. As a person who writes a weekly commentary, I have to say writing for things to be read is different than writing for things to be heard, to be spoken. I agree. Uh, yes. When you when you're writing something to be read, you actually might write out the entire name of the corporation, comma, INC Incorporated, and then maybe even put the Nasdaq symbol in. You know, right. Yes. Not, people just read right through it. You know, yeah. um, but you would never read that out loud. You would never. It's like that. Why would we listen to that? Exactly. You know, yes. and it's like these effective tools to written to be read. I was just caught by that idea that, for instance, the Declaration of Independence written to be read mm -hmm. and out loud as opposed to the laws as we make them today. Absolutely. Not yep. written to be <laughs> No one's going to sit through this. Yeah. Uh, I read, I've read entire books, believe it or not, have been written about the writing of the Declaration of Independence. And Thomas Jefferson could easily have written just a list of grievances. That's what originally he was – that was the intention, a list of grievances. And then he wrote one line, all, these truths are self-evident that all men are created equal. That one line unleashed the imagination of so many people and they realized, oh, wait a minute. What if I'm created equal? What if I, I can actually achieve something on my own and it completely changed the world? So words – well, you know this. Words matter. They, they mattered then, they, they matter, matter today. They matter a lot. Yeah. You mentioned the term verbal beauty, and you actually go into that just a little bit in the book. And you also mentioned Pope Francis. How did yeah. Pope Francis get into the act on verbal beauty? <laughs> I need okay. to know this. Yes. Okay. So uh, Aristotle, uh, again, father of persuasion, gave us all of the tools of rhetoric. 
And he said language, metaphor, metaphor gives language its verbal beauty. And now what is metaphor? And if you think about it, we speak in metaphor all the time. Metaphor is simply comparing two different things with similar characteristics. Uh, it's a close cousin of analogy. So, but so in Shakespeare, uh, Juliet is the sun. That's a metaphor. If I were to say Juliet is, well, she's like the sun. She, she's a bright spot in my day. <laughs> That's an analogy. doesn't sound as pretty. So metaphor is comparing two things with like characteristics. But the point of metaphor is to show you to take an abstraction, to take something that is unfamiliar and to ground it in something that is familiar. Here's the point of metaphor. We use it constantly. Almost everything we say, we do, we think, we process our world in metaphor. And so great persuaders, people like Pope Francis, are actually very skilled at metaphor. He uses metaphor constantly. And metaphor, uh, his metaphors are the parts of his speeches that are really picked up. So when he talks about um, Earth as being um, our, our common sister and our common home, and and it's a um, it's a pile of trash. You know, all of these things. He's constantly using metaphor to reinforce his arguments. Pope Francis is a skilled communicator, and he actually talked about learning communication skills when he went through seminary. So he understands the power of words and, and ideas and how to structure words. Well, he gave a TED Talk. You may have heard about this, which was extraordinary. He actually gave an 18-minute TED Talk. But he said, power is like drinking gin on an empty stomach. And that is the quote that got picked up, and that's the one that went viral and got shared, you know, thousands of times. But I think he knows that going in. He thinks about the kind of metaphors and the kind of analogies that he's going to use. And when you think about it, it makes sense that a person of faith, someone who is talking about an abstraction that you don't see, would have to develop a number of different types of metaphors, metaphorical language, to give you a visualization of what he means, because it's so abstract. And so metaphor is very powerful for anybody who speaks about complex ideas, obviously ones you don't see, like, that, like faith, but also financial. Warren Buffett um, speaks in metaphor in almost every conversation, every interview he has, he is a big fan of using metaphorical language to make the abstract uh, more concrete or more visible. So he's constantly comparing uh, investments. When somebody says, when somebody asked him recently, uh, what do you look for in an investment? He goes, well, I like to think of investments as an economic castle. An economic castle with a moat around it. So it would be very hard for competitors to get across the moat. And what kind of knight, what kind of leader do I want protecting that castle? Again, it's, it's his, he constantly goes right into analogy and metaphor. And going back to Aristotle, who introduced the concept for us, that metaphor gives language its verbal beauty. And so today, if you want to be a better persuader, it's good to use metaphor and analogy, especially if you're talking about something complex that you need to make understandable to someone who may not be an expert in that area.
You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn, and my guest today is Carmine Gallo. You may well know him from his columns at Forbes.com and Inc.com or his books, including Talk Like Ted and The Storyteller's Secret. He's here today with five stars, the communication secrets to get from good to great. It's one thing to just want to be a better speaker <laughs> or be a better persuader. Even if you've nothing to sell, you've always got to sell yourself. But there are some situations where it is essential, it's highly critical that you be a good communicator. You talk about uh, speaking to a team of high-level military officers in training about those times when communicating and persuading is critical. They may have 10 minutes or less, and they've got to choose which critical information, condense it, and make an argument to someone with a lot of power and not that information. They've got to learn how to do it. And the consequences for doing it badly, of course, are, are can be devastating. Yes, they're, they're life-threatening. Absolutely. The, this is one of the many reasons why I wrote this book is because over the last few years, I have been meeting, I, obviously I write about communication storytelling um, and, and presentation skills. But I've been meeting so many people at the top levels of, of companies and nonprofits and organizations and also the military, about five different divisions of the military that I've met with in the last couple of years, where I'm beginning to learn that, no, you need to be exceptional when it comes to communication. Uh, average skills are not good enough. You really have to be exceptional. There's a big difference. And the, the exact... Uh, experience that you're talking about, uh, this this was amazing to me. They are a group of the top 1%, by the way, of Air Force and Navy officers who are specially selected to go to the uh, New Mexico desert at an Air, Air Force base, where for one year, they're actually taught to be the nuclear proliferation experts that are going to be sent to the Pentagon, to different countries, and they showed me a patch. Everyone gets this patch on their uniform that designates them as one of the top nuclear experts in the world. So they understand a lot about what they do, war games. They're always thinking about what would happen if X happens, how would China react, how would Russia react. You know, so they have to go through these complicated games. I walked into the class because I heard from, you know, somebody who knew somebody that they were using my books. So finally, I contacted the right person. They said, we absolutely are. We're using, uh, it was Talk Like Ted. Exactly. And about TED Talks. I said, what, is it, what do TED Talks have to do with teaching people about uh, nuclear proliferation? They said, well, come over and we'll show you. So I attended the class, part of the class, and had to sign all sorts of NDAs before I got in there. So I, I can't. There were some very interesting things that they were talking about, but I can say this. Everybody had a paperback copy of one of my books on their desk. You know, they were dog-eared and marked up, so they were definitely going through them. I said, why is communication so critical here, and what are you learning from this? And they said, Carmine, when these officers are going to be experts in this particular area, when they have an opportunity to speak to a general or when they have an opportunity to speak to the secretary of defense they are matters that come up constantly all day long nobody wants a phd thesis nobody has the time or the cognitive capacity to look through a hundred page powerpoint deck what they need is someone to simply 
deliver that information in no more than 10 minutes. Here's what we know. Here's what the potential conflict might be. And here are no more, get this, I love this. Here are no more than three different scenarios. And here's the one I would recommend. But it has to be done clearly and concisely. So communication in everything whether it's in branches of the military, whether it's in airlines, they teach pilots a lot of this too. It has to be done very clearly and convincingly. So that, that, that's another very interesting aspect of it, which is why I call it five stars, because average isn't good enough in anything. You have to be an exceptional communicator, and the exceptional ones stand out. After this book was put to bed, after I was completely done with it, so it's not in this book, I heard from some folks who are instructors with Army Special Forces. They are the Green Berets. And these are the folks that are dropped into real intense war zones. And what's interesting is somebody told me, Carmine, these candidates can get through the toughest physical training of all. They like to say they're tougher than the Navy SEALs. Navy SEALs don't like that. So there's a little back and forth. But can you swim? <laughs> I don't know. They have, it is unbelievable the, the, what they have to go through in terms of the physical intensity. So most people drop out after the first day, let alone the first three weeks of you know no sleep for like four hours sleep in, in five days, that type of thing. So it's emotional, it's physical. And they said, but Carmine, by the time the, the best athletes can get to us, the smartest people can get to us, 20%, I don't know if I can say this publicly, but why not? I never signed anything. They said 20% of the officer candidates that want to be Green Berets, 20% are eliminated even after they passed all the other tests. I said, why? They said, because they can't communicate as leaders. When we drop people into a war zone, they have to be able to get together with uh, warring tribes, warring factions, with warlords. Who certainly didn't expect to see who them. Who didn't expect to see them. <laughs> and they have to convince them that it would be a good idea for everyone to work together to put down this particular threat. In other words, they said it's one of the most challenging communication experiences that they can have. If you cannot communicate as a leader among people with different experiences and, and different languages, it, you, you can pass the physical part. <laughs> you can be a great athlete. It, it won't count. This reminds me of what you said about Sully Sullenberger and what he said when he realized that the flight was in trouble. He said very few things to very few people. To re recount that for us. Well, everyone knows the uh, story of the uh, U.S. Airways jet that Sully had to ditch into the Hudson River when the geese, right, the, the birds flew into the engines. And all of pilots are actually trained to do this. They have to communicate quickly and concisely. And so Sully was talking to ground control, obviously, for a few minutes. But the only thing that was heard in the cabin loudspeakers is a communication that he's trained to do to both the passengers, but more to the flight crew. And he said, this is your captain. Brace for impact. Those three words. Period. They're trained <laughs> for that. Brace for impact. Brace for impact. And, I, and then I did some research into this. And I talked to pilots. And I looked at... The science on this. Brace for impact is like the most perfect sentence. It's short. It's actionable. No multisyllabic words. Brace for impact. And it immediately triggers hundreds of hours of training on the part of the flight attendants. They know exactly what to do when they hear those three words. Brace for impact. 
I've been speaking with Carmine Gallo, the author of Five Stars, The Communication Secrets to Get from Good to Great. We'll talk more after a break. Podcasts of Tech Nation and Tech Nation Health are available at NPR One, iTunes, Stitcher, and other podcast syndication outlets. Coming up in the second half of our show on Tech Nation Health, what happens to the eight out of nine drugs which enter FDA clinical trials and aren't approved? MEI Pharma sees it as opportunity. Stay with us. Listening to Tech Nation, I've been speaking with Carmine Gallo, the author of Five Stars The Communication Secrets to Get from Good to Great. We'd been talking about Sully Sullenberger and the emergency landing of the U.S. Airways plane into the Hudson River. It's very interesting that what's called crew communication in the airline industry has actually been a very big part of why we have such a safe uh, industry today is because of the way they actually changed communication. Even with the Southwest Airlines example that happened not too long ago when the engine blew out, the pilots are trained to do three things. And they know it immediately. It's instinctive and it is so simple and ingrained in all of their training. They are to aviate, navigate, communicate. So the first thing you do when the engine goes out, aviate, fly the plane, get your hands back on the wheels navigate to a certain level so that people can breathe, and then you begin the communication. But aviate, navigate, communicate, A and C. Now, notice, Moira, they don't teach these pilots a 15-step program, right? It's just three things, and it's very, very simple. And that's why people were impressed when they saw the tran- they heard the transcripts of that particular Southwest pilot. They said, boy, she, she really appeared calm. Well, if you listen, listen to the transcript, yes, she is calm because she's been trained to do this, but she's also trained in communication. So everything she said was very, very short. She wasn't being curt. She was just being very short and very specific so everybody could understand quickly. 
in Silicon Valley and social media, when someone asks you about your startup, if if you want to get funded, um, you frequently hear people talking about what the business or the organization will do. But you're saying you need to start with the vision. Yes. And this was not my idea. I've, I've talked to a number of very prominent uh, venture capitalists. One in particular who I have in the book is Michael Moritz. Michael Moritz was one of the first big investors behind Google. He also invested in, in PayPal and other big companies, Air, Airbnb. So he's done fairly well for himself. And he, told, he was the one who fir- first told me this. He said, Carmine, when the Google guys walked into Sequoia Capital, he said he remembers it like it was yesterday. They were able to succinctly summarize the big picture in one sentence. And they said, well, we've developed Google can access the world's information and make it accessible to you in one click. So in other words, oh, organize the world's information and make it accessible to me in one click. Oh, I get it. Show me how it works. Big picture before details. So when Michael Moritz told me that, I quickly, I immediately went back to uh, one of my favorite neuroscientists and someone I've kind of become friends with, uh, and that's John Medina at the University of Washington who wrote uh, Brain Rules. And he always talks about how the brain interprets and processes information. And I recall him telling me many years ago, Carmine, the brain needs to see the big picture before details. So if you have an idea that you want to propose, make sure that it's the big picture first. Most people begin in the details. Right. right? That's what we mean by in the weeds. Oh, speaking of metaphor, you're in the weeds, right? But no, it's the big picture. People need to see the the overall picture before the details. And so venture capitalists now will often, not just a Sequoia capital, but many venture capitalists have told me, if you cannot explain to me what you do, in a sentence or less, uh, I'm not that interested because that means you haven't really thought it through. I interviewed Richard Branson not too long ago, and I was able to get him before I wrote this book. So I put it in the book as well. And Richard Branson told me specifically about a company that he had invested in be, uh, from a pitch on a beer mat that turned out to be Virgin <laughs> Australia. But he so said, Richard Branson. So Richard Branson. <laughs> and, and then, of course, as a joke, as a joke, as a follow-up, he said, now, I don't know, maybe we were drunk at the time, and maybe that convinced me. But his point was, and this was funny, Moira, because I, I actually talked to him in person. So I brought a, a uh, an envelope and a beer mat and a, co- a beer coaster and a napkin, and I said, so tell me what what all these have in common. And he said, oh, th- this is easy. I know exactly where you're going with that. If a pitch cannot fit on an envelope, a beer mat, or a, a napkin, then I'm not interested. And he, he <laughs> but said, you but, get the beer but, anyway. <laughs> and he, but you get the beer. But he said that yeah, there is, there's something to that, isn't it? Again, it comes back to simple words that we've been talking about, brace for impact. It comes back to simple sentence structure. It comes back to the 10 minutes that the military folks have. Right together idea across simplicity of structure, but it takes it takes a little work to make it simple. It's not easy to be simple. I'm delighted that you mentioned Michael Moritz because you actually have about two dozen quotes from venture capitalists, each going yeah. sort of in a different direction. Um, and his quote is: "Burning a message into a person's skull is a rare art. In order to do it, it must be memorable, clear, vivid." And have an element of emotion attached to it. Now, 
we don't know when the Google Boys were there, <laughs> where the emotion was, but obviously it had to have grabbed him. Isn't that interesting that he wanted something, uh, again, he's investing in putting a lot of money in these ideas. And Michael Moritz, and I also talked to the folks at Y Combinator who were the first to invest in Airbnb, and I talked to a number of other venture capitalists because, Moira, they're the people who see pitches and presentations all day long. But notice what they want. They want clarity. They want uh, simplicity. And they want emotion. Michael Moritz loves poetry. He's a poet. He's, he's an investor and he's a poet. He wants both. He wants the numbers, but he also wants the emotion. And there was a, a venture capitalist at Airbnb or at Y Combinator. And they've invested in, in uh, Dropbox, Reddit, Airbnb, and many others. And he told me, if you can't tell me a story, then I don't know what journey you want me to go on. So you have to actually be a good storyteller as well. Well, storyteller is fundamental to persuasion. Storytelling is not academic and data-driven. Now, let's say we're in the workplace. There's no big elevator pitch here. There are sure. no funders around. One person is brilliant, committed, hardworking, but the person next to him or her has better communication skills. Who gets promoted? <laughs> there is a, a survey that, that I, I could have chosen from a million of them, but there was one survey in particular that I found not too long ago, recently, that said hiring managers, 94% of hiring managers said that they, that an employee who has better communication skills is more likely to be elevated to a leadership position than an employee with more experience but weaker verbal skills. And that is something that, believe it or not, is actually replicated in a lot of different hiring surveys in workplaces around the world. Well, it makes sense to me. If I'm a manager, no matter how, up, how far up the line, I need to make sure that whoever reports to me is able to communicate with me. You know, so that you might not be the best at this, this, and this, but you're the one that I can trust to communicate to me, and it'll be clear. And and when I communicate to you, you'll get it. I mean, this is a two-way street. So I don't care how brilliant you are. Albert Einstein was a part of Tech Nation. He'd get to have his own office. <laughs> we <laughs> sure. wouldn't really yep. depend on much on him, I don't yeah, think. Absolutely. You know? uh, I, I love that. And uh, that reminds me of I've got multiple references to McKinsey. McKinsey is a big consulting company, one of the most important consulting companies in the world. They get, I didn't know this at the time, 200,000 applications a year. They're the most selective consulting firm worldwide. They only choose 1%. And then even among those 1%, to elevate yourself throughout the organization takes a lot of skill. And that those 1%, they all have to have Ivy League MBAs just to get into the, the final uh, selection process at McKinsey. It's called the CEO factory. They create more CEOs than almost anybody come out of McKinsey. Sheryl Sandberg was a former McKinsey person. So they go on to lead their own companies in many, at many times. So I've done a lot of research on McKinsey. I've spoken to McKinsey. One of the things they do when they actually weed out uh, everyone else uh, and they kind of whittle it down to the finalists, they'll ask you, Take that 20 well, – they have to ask you to do these pitches. So people come in with these huge decks, these PowerPoint decks that they were taught in business school, 100 pages. And some of the partners have told me they asked them to take uh, 
20 pages. For every 20 pages of the PowerPoint, we want to see two. So we want to see how you can simplify complex financial information because we, the partners, are not the ones that you're going to be presenting information to. It's to our clients who don't understand as well as we do. So how are you going to simplify it? So if you cannot communicate persuasively and have learned the art of simplifying complex information, you could still have an MBA from Harvard or Yale. You still won't get through. You're out on the street. Look, pound of the pavement. With well, you'll have to go else. to the, the, the oh, second darn. best one. <laughs> oh, darn. Yeah, but you'll have a job. Now, while you wrote an entire book, Talk Like Ted, you do have a, a, a smaller section here that has some high points. And you've got five points what makes a good TED talk. And the second one, not everyone is good at, and it's even harder to do it intentionally. And that's make the audience laugh. Hmm, yes. That's a tall. Would that be your next book? No, that, that's, <laughs> How do you make the uh, audience laugh? That's a, that's a, that's a hard one. Absolutely, there's, there's no question about that. I think it's easier to teach people to uh, d deliver a presentation that's more visual than wordy. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> the, the, that, those, that we can do. The, that we can do. One of the things that's very important is this idea of humor, and uh, that is one of the areas where we connect with people emotionally, is to get people to laugh and to uh, resonate with us in that way. Now, humor, though, is one of those things that is you can't come out and tell a joke, you know, if, uh, if you're not Jerry Seinfeld. Uh, yeah. And even Jerry Seinfeld still works on his material. And he worked today. for years on getting <laughs> yeah. audience to understand what his jokes were. Right. I even saw uh, Jimmy Fallon and Jerry Seinfeld together and, and Jimmy's doing Jerry and saying, and here's how you make, you know, a Jerry Seinfeld joke. Right. And, yes. so, and the two of them are just roaring. It's like, yeah, that's right. That's right. He spent 10 years in the, in the smoky bars, you know, getting people, audiences to understand where he was going with this, how it worked. Yep. So the first, there were a lot of dead, dead audiences mm -hmm. not yep. getting the joke. You have no time when you're speaking to an audience yep. to work up your humor. So yeah, that's so a challenge. It, it is a very, it's a challenge. And that's why I don't recommend trying to be like a comedian because that's not the goal. So when I give presentations, for example, I'm not good at jokes. I can hardly remember a joke. So I never tell jokes, but I do recall that when I say certain things or I show a certain picture in a presentation, that I get a pretty good laugh from the audience. I get a lot of smiles. They tell you. Oh, okay. <laughs> I think I'll repeat that one. <laughs> you know, a couple of them go back to John Medina, what John Medina told me. Or if I have a, a conversation with somebody, like the Richard Branson one I told you about, with the, uh, uh, the pitch that he, uh, he bought into because it was delivered on a beer napkin. So every time I tell that little story, of the pitch on the beer napkin, people laugh, you know, and, so and, and, they, have smi and they have smiles listen. on their face. Oh, okay, I'll repeat that one. But that doesn't mean I'm, I'm setting it up as a joke. But what, when we do business presentations, Moira, it gets, you, you know what happens. Everything goes out the window. Personality, emotion, humor. All of a sudden, we think it's just about the data, which is the exact wrong way to persuade somebody of your opinion. Now, I tried to resist, but you say, find your theme song. You really mean a theme song. Yes. Yeah. What's your theme song? <laughs> 
Uh, well, I would say living on a prayer, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, I what I what I what I was suggesting about the theme song, Moira, is uh, that creative individuals actually work off uh, music. And a great presentation is actually like a film score. So uh, I learned this from Peggy Noonan, actually. Peggy Noonan, a great speechwriter, writes to film scores. She says film scores are some of the best music to listen to. So I've actually started writing books with film scores in the background because film scores have all of the variations that you would expect, right? There, there's a climax, it grows, it builds, there's crescendos, there's soft parts. Gladiator is one of my favorites, though. Gladiator, with, remember, with uh, Russell Crowe. Yeah. That's a beautiful film score. But, uh, yeah, film scores are actually that, – that would be my song of choice right now. So you do nothing else. Find yourself a theme song. Right. That's got to be good. <laughs> Carmine, always a pleasure. Lots more lots more to talk about. I hope you come back. See us again. Thank you. My guest today is Carmine Gallo. The book is Five Stars, The Communication Secrets to Get from Good to Great. It's published by St. Martin's Press. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. Welcome to Tech Nation Health, reimagining the future of health and healthcare with the emergence of new technologies and breakthrough science. Only one out of nine new candidate drugs entering FDA clinical trials will actually make it through to approval. That's right, only one out of nine. I asked Dr. Dan Gold, the CEO of MEI Pharma, what's wrong with the eight that don't make it? Do they just not work? Sometimes that's the case. We joke sometimes that there's probably a lot of drugs out there that the company failed the drug and the drug didn't fail the company because there's so much that goes into from the very beginning when you have a drug that looks interesting to getting it across the finish line. There's so many things that can go wrong. Um, if you don't know what you're doing, sometimes that can be fatal. Sometimes it is the drug. It just things happen and it seemed like a good idea the early day to look good and it just doesn't pan out. But oftentimes the clinical design, the regulatory design, the market shifts, there's lots of reasons. But oftentimes um, the, the drug developer can also fail the drug and that's why there is there has been a movement to try and go back and look at drugs that look promising and see if you can repurpose them. And remember, not... Everybody goes through this process, those one in nine that make it through those nine. There's a lot of work that went into getting compounds ready to go through the process, and we lose most of our candidates from the lab bench to entering phase one. A lot of times there's toxicity issues or you just you find an interesting target but you can't really get the drug to hit it because it's, it's hiding somewhere inside the cell and you just can't get to it. Um, so there's a lot of reasons why the, the good ideas and the very early seeds never get past um, the bench. 
but then there's a lot of examples where you get into the clinic or you get into the animals before you go in the clinic and you find that there's some mysterious off-target that you didn't realize. and It's hitting the target you want, but there's but another ex- target. Exactly, and that's, that can be a big problem as well. So either you can engineer that out or you can't. Or that target exists on another cell type or in another cell that you weren't aware of but it causes the toxicity. That often happens as well. Or you just run out of money. (laughs) Or you just run out of money. (laughs) Yep, that that can happen too. That can happen too. And now you look at all those drugs that Mm -hmm. were not, didn't get crowned Queen of the May or didn't get all the, you look at all of them and say, you know, we got some candidates here. Right, exactly. Exactly. and, and it's unfortunate because there is a lot of uh, very interesting science out there, a lot of interesting compounds. And for whatever reason, they might not be sexy right now. Uh, the investment community may not think that they're really that that that. There great. has to be investment dollars. We're talking a billion plus. Yeah, absolutely. And that takes commitment independent of whether it's a good idea. Exactly. That's right. And oftentimes science is is not different than a lot of other walks of life. Something seems like that's really exciting and everybody kind of moves in that direction. And if you happen to be swimming against the stream, you may not be able to attract the dollars you need. And there's only so many times you can mortgage your house or hit up, your friends, and, hit you up your friends and family. And uh, unfortunately, some there are some probably more than some. There's probably a great number of times when good drugs are left on the vine because of that. Okay, so how do you do this? How do you go searching around for these drugs? There's lots. Don't tell me it's a secret. No, No. (laughs) I wish it were. There's, um, you know, it's a lot of his networking. Um, A lot of it is going to meetings like this where we meet with small companies, we have our own our own network of investors, uh, colleagues who happen to know about something and say, you really should take a look at that. Uh, the most recent example is a drug that we uh, in-licensed. Uh, a good friend of mine uh, knew what our capabilities were, and they were aware of this drug and just didn't really feel that this company had what it takes to get this drug moving. And he, he called me and said, you really could go take a look at this. I think you guys could really do a good job with this drug. And we met with the company, and we had lots of meetings. We looked at their data, and, and I, th- I thought, well, you know, he's got something here. And so we approached them, and we licensed the drug, and now we were developing it. So there's lots of ways of doing it. Oftentimes it comes down to... Uh, personal contacts. Isn't that always the case? Yes, it's exactly. not who you know, it's, it's who you know knows. Yeah, <laughs> it's really true. You, you, know, you can go out and, and, and think you're really smart and, and, and do all the, the surveying and, and hire the, buy the, the, the data sheets and everything and find, the, uh, find these companies. And the end of the day, it's, it's really uh, somebody brings you an idea and you're like, wow, I think that's really exciting. Okay, so you get there and you make the deal. You either in-license it or you buy it or you make some other deal. Mm-hmm. Somehow you put mm-hmm. a deal together. Now it's your problem, child. Right, that's right. What do you do at MEI Pharma mm-hmm. that uh, – do you look like a regular company just trying yeah. to develop drugs? Yeah, I think for the most part. Um, you know, I made the decision a, a long time ago when I took over running the company that – you need to focus on what you need, what you know best, and um, we. It's very expensive to run research laboratories, 
Uh, we did have research labs for a while. We, we got a nice compound out of them, and we we're in the clinic with it. But in the long run, um, it's, it's very hard uh, to, to support that kind of an enterprise. So we've just built a very, as good of a team as we possibly could that has experience developing drugs and developing drugs in oncology and have done that successfully so that we can bring all the resources to bear when we look at a compound or when we actually get it. We, we've already decided what's the best development plan for that drug, and then we're ready to go as soon as we get it um, and to try and uh, carry out that plan. Well, take us through an example about getting a drug that uh, wherever it came from mm-hmm. in whatever condition and you carrying it through. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, so one example is a drug that we just presented data at the um, uh, American Society of Clinical Oncology, the ASCO meeting just today. Um, that's a drug that we knew that the the target was already uh, validated uh, by others. It was a very important target. If you can uh, affect the activity of that target, it was an enzyme, you can have an effect on a growing cancer cell, in this ah. case uh, B-cell tumors, B-cell lymphomas. Um, this was a drug that we thought may have best-in-class properties, and the company that was developing ran out of money and was going to shutter their, their doors. And so um, we looked at their data and we acquired it. And at the time, they had done some very nice preclinical work, cell lines, a few animal experiments. Um, and we took it over. And the first thing we had to do is figure out how to manufacture it at a, at a professional way. They were doing it on their bench top, and it took us a long time. And once we did it, we had to figure out the best way to formulate it so that actually when you take those pills, it would, uh, it would be released and get into your blood system. Um, and then we, once we solved that, which really took us about a year, year and a half, we were ready to go. We knew the playing field. We had studied the, uh, where the competition was and what the, the data were, and we knew exactly where we wanted to go. And um, you know, today we presented that data. The, the drug performed extremely well, and now we're moving into uh, the last phase uh, of testing before the, hopefully the drug will be approved. So, so you're going into phase three with it. So in this case... Um, you can go into phase three, which generally means you're going to compare it to something. Um, oftentimes, if you're treating patients who have already had treatments and then there's they've no, run out of options, they've run out of options. You can just treat with your own drug, uh, and if you have a suitable response that the agent FDA agrees with, then you can get an approval. So it's actually a phase two study. So you, you can in oncology you can get approval. We so need phase, drugs. Yes, we need good mm-hmm. drugs. Exactly. Right. How long would that take, or is that very from now? Yeah, yeah. So um, we believe it. it, it we'll be hopefully treating patients by the end of this year, and uh, by two years from then, we should be uh, applying to the agency for approval. See how that goes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you must have a lot of other drugs lying around here, huh? A lot. So we have four drugs in the <laughs> we have I have nothing three. to sell you. Yeah. So. <laughs> we, we actually have four in the clinic right now. Uh, one of them uh, is fully partnered with a, a Swiss pharmaceutical company, and it's in uh, phase three. Uh, and uh, hopefully that will pan out. That was a drug that is for um, uh, acute myelogenous leukemia. It's a, it's a disease of mostly older folks. And for many of them, they can't take the standard of care, which is a lot of very intensive chemotherapy. So there's a big need for new drugs. And uh, our drug in, in the trials that we ran looked very effective in these patients. 
And the FDA agreed, and they gave us what's called breakthrough designation. Um, and then we went ahead and we did a partnership uh, to take it to the across the finish line. How does that change your company? The idea that you're not having to come up with the, all the ideas and do all sort of the initial scrambling around. In some cases, you you really leapfrog, you know, very mm-hmm. much later in the process. What does that save your company? Well, it, hopefully, it saves us a lot of time. Um, it's an interesting issue because you have to be. There's a lot of risk uh, because you're you're acquiring something at a certain stage, and now you're stepping in. And for a company like ours, I mean, we're very small. We have to be more right than we're wrong. A larger pharmaceutical company, the larger ones, the Pfizer's, the Roche's, the Merck's, um, they can they can take the risk and have fifty or a hundred compounds. Con- all the uh, concurrently in in under study, and if one or two or five of them don't pan out, that's okay. Um, they'll just move on to to the next one. For us, we have four. If one of them doesn't pan out, that's twenty five percent of our pipeline. That's 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 a bigger uh, problem for us. But if one or two are successful, I mean, you you've said one out of ten are successful, and we have four, so the odds would say. Um, you're going to have a lot we're of failures. Have, we no. could have failures. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, the odds are, aren't necessarily. But we, well, the but thing is, is that you've it, actually, you know, you've actually brought taken, a lot of these ahead. Exactly. And, and it's not just the circumstance of just the drug. It's the circumstance of, you know, when you run out of money, uh, it has nothing to do with how good the drug is right. and how good the science that has been done to date is. So if you can pick not just the compound up, but all the uh, all the materials around it, and many times the people mm-hmm. they right. got it there. Yeah. Then you actually can continue what's going to go on. Yeah, in that you're absolutely set. right. Yeah, and and as you rightly point out, a lot of compounds in those one out of nine that succeed, or one out of ten, the nine that didn't, many of them fail before they even get in the clinic. So there is a big attrition rate from phase zero to phase one, phase one to phase two. Remarkably, though, drugs that go into phase three, at least in cancer, still about half of them fail, which is rather remarkable. Rough. But it's better than one out of ten. That's you know? right. <laughs> it's one it's out of two. Rough. Yeah. That's a rough, yeah. rough thing. Dan, thank you so much for joining me. I, I hope you come back and see us again. Thank you so much. Dr. Dan Gold is the CEO of MEI Pharma. More information is available at meipharma.com. For Tech Nation Health, I'm Moira Gunn. Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. The director of technical production is Monte Carlos. And audio engineers include Howard Gelman, Seal Muller, and Larry Upton. Our theme music was composed by Ann Nochtrieb-Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and Internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. Tech Nation and Biotech Nation are productions of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancor.